my little studio. So I have a complete self-sufficient operation happening here <laughs> between the podcast and then we do our LPTV shows from here. So it's cool. One I can do all my day. CNN hits from here. It's, it's great. Awesome. One day I'll be that fabulous. Not today, but one day. <laughs> um, Welcome back, everybody. It's your host, Natalia. Today, I am so excited. I, you guys are in for a real treat. Um, today, I'm getting to talk with Tara Setmeyer, and I am just really excited to chat with her. She is a CNN political commentator. She contributes to ABC. She has her own podcast um, called Honest. I want to make sure I get it right. Honestly Talking, right? Honestly Speaking. Honestly Speaking. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Honestly speaking, um, and I like it, one, because I like a fresh voice, um, so I'm, I'm just jazzed to chat with you today, um, and you're also an advisor for the Lincoln Project, um, so please just like introduce yourself. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me. And um, I always appreciate an opportunity to have conversations that are outside just the pure political chaos of my day-to-day life. <laughs> um, <laughs> and for those who don't know me, I guess I am a CNN contributor. Um, I've guest hosted The View several times over the years. Um, I also spent several years on Capitol Hill as a Republican communications director for a member of Congress. Um, I have since left the party, uh, I'm still a conservative in my worldview, but I want nothing to do with these despicable Republicans after the way they've behaved under Donald Trump. And um, for the last about year, I've been part of the Lincoln Project. And as we continue to put forth our pro-democracy movement now that Trump is out, but Trumpism is not. So we have a lot of work ahead of us and we've expanded into Lincoln Project TV and I host a show called The Breakdown with uh, the Rick Wilson, who is the ad genius behind most of our Lincoln Project ads. So it's a busy time, lots of rewarding things to do, and mm-hmm. um, but I'm glad to be here and answer lots of your questions. Yay! Yes, I know. I I mean, working in journalism, especially in the Beltway, like all we do is talk about politics. Uh, so it's nice to not always talk about that, even though that's like a huge part of your life. So we're definitely going to also chat about that. Oh, I don't mind. It's okay. <laughs> I mean, when you get into this line of work, you kind of, it kind of goes with the territory, you know, so, <laughs> it comes a part of you. Of, of course. Um, so I just want to start off, you know, like, how did you get your start? What's your backstory? Who are you? Well, um, my mom would say uh, I'm unapologetic for who God made me. And so that's kind of how I've uh, approached my entire life and being someone who's I'm never afraid to really voice her opinion. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, since I was a little kid, my mom encouraged me to always speak up. Um, I'm biracial. My mom had me at 21. So she raised me as a single parent until I was 15. She married my stepdad. who was very cool. Um, but my biological father is actually Afro-Latino. He's from Guatemala. I did not grow up with him because he was a little crazy. And my mom had to make a decision. And I'm glad she did. The co-parenting thing wouldn't have worked. And that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's quite all right. Mom made the right decision. Um, my mom is German-Italian. And um, I grew up in North Jersey. 
So I'm a very, very proud Jersey girl. Can anyone, any of your listeners, if they're from New Jersey, particularly North Jersey, then they will understand the pride and swagger that Jersey folks carry with them <laughs> everywhere they go. <clears throat> People think we're obnoxious um, or, you know, that we talk funny, but we say that everybody else is not us. Um, <laughs> and uh, but I'm grateful for my very blue collar New Jersey upbringing because it really shaped who I am and um, part of the reason why I, I'm unafraid to back down from a good fight is because you have to be tough when you're from the tri-state area. You know, I live, I grew up 15 minutes outside of New York City. So I had all the benefits of New York and then like coming back home over the bridge in Jersey to the grass and the suburbs was the best of both worlds. And um, there's no time for weakness or else you'll get run over. So <laughs> I'm appreciative of having that type of upbringing because it, it really, it really helped me to be uh, well-rounded because I had both the suburban experience and then, like I said, the, the toughness and grit of New York City right there, too. And my mom was tough. I mean, she was on her own at 15, 16. She was in show business. So she was in shows and on Broadway and traveling and um, in commercials. She was extras in movies. She was an extra in The Godfather. Um, <laughs> you know, so she lived a very full life even before she had me. Mm-hmm. So even though she had me young, but she was still pretty um, worldly by the time she was 21. And, and that she instilled a lot of that um, in me. So I love the arts. I love theater. I love music. Um, I have very eclectic taste in music. Everything from, like I said, Broadway musicals, which I absolutely love, mm-hmm. um, to Bon Jovi. Again, proud Jersey girl. I love hair bands. I am 45, so I grew up in the 80s and um, <laughs> still rock 80s music constantly when I, when I drive and when I cook. So I am a, uh, a rocker chick at heart. But it's uh, it's it's nice to to be able to have um, other outlets besides politics because politics is such a intense cutthroat <laughs> career. Mm-hmm. You know, my husband is actually um, a federal law enforcement officer uh, at an agency that I cannot name, but it's a very important one and very high profile. And he's been around the world three times, and he says to me, you know. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> um, and so I, you know, I tell him, well, it just kind of just goes with the territory. You know, I was, I say I was built for this and obviously <laughs> God had a plan for me to be in the middle of all of this. And I'm grateful for that because it really impacts lives and of people and, you know, use the gifts God has given you and communications and, and, um, you know, standing up for what's right when it's not popular is and encouraging others to do the same seems to be mine. So that's how I ended up in politics. I just, it was something natural for me when I was younger um, at my mom's first parent teacher <laughs> conference. My, my elementary school principal told my mother that I was either going to be a lawyer or a politician because mm-hmm. I had kids in and out of situations before they even knew they were in or out of them. <laughs> I was six. So, <laughs> you know, I thought, well, okay, it's either going to be that line, you know, go down that career path mm-hmm. or I was really into Wonder Woman when I was six. So that's what I thought I was going. I thought I was going to become a superhero when I was six years old. I had my truth lasso and everything and just knew that I was, uh, that that was going to be my destiny, but not quite, not quite. I'm still a huge fan of Wonder Woman, by the way, but, um, God had a different plan for me. 
So, you know, you talked earlier on, you said, you know, that you, you left the party and, mm-hmm. but you're still conservative in mindset. What exactly does that mean? Also, what does it mean to leave the party? I guess I've never fully understood like what exactly when politicians say that, like what that means or what that looks like. Um, and what do you mean that you're still conservative in mindset? So, um, I'll start with the conservatism worldview thing first. I think it's important for people to understand there's a distinction between party affiliation and how that operates versus how your ideological belief system. And a lot of times people just kind of put them together, but they're not always the same because there is different ideological ranges within political parties, right? For Democrats, for example, you have the progressives on one end. And then you have like the blue dog Democrats on the other who are a little more conservative, the way they approach fiscal issues or defense and um, things like that, role of government. Um, and it's the same thing with Republicans. You know, as a conservative, I, I be- there's certain beliefs, just like basic things that are concerning the economy and, and the role of government, uh, free markets, uh, strong military, low taxes, the less government intervention in your life, the better um, because we think that the you know people know better how to run their lives than a big behemoth government telling you what to do every day. Um, there's a role for government, obviously. You have to maintain order and things like that. But mm-hmm. um, and we think that too much government infringes on individual freedom. And the individual freedoms that we enjoy in this country are partially what makes this country great. And we've seen what happens when you have really um, intrusive authoritarian type governments over the years in history, it doesn't work out so well for the people. So so when I say the conservative worldview, it kind of comes from that point. I look to private sector, citizen-based solutions to problems before I think, okay, this the government should come in and handle this. And there's roles for that, you know, but that's not my default position. Democrats have a different view of what the, world of, of what the role of government should be. And, you know, unfortunately, Republicans and and the conservative movement have been, I think, irreparably harmed by Trumpism and what what that has introduced into the body politic. And there is no room for people like me anymore who stand up for pro-democracy issues, who stand up for rule of law, who call out hypocrisy, who call out indecency, um, who call out bad fiscal policy, who call out us succumbing and appeasing our enemies. Um, and it's just, there are so many things that the party has gone off off the deep end on that are no longer in line with what the traditional Republican Party represented when I first decided that that was the political apparatus that I would use to, because um, that's what it is. The parties are really just the mechanism by which you express your political power. Mm-hmm. Conservatism is the belief system behind it. And there's, you know, again, like different things. Um, there's libertarians, there's, you know, Green Party folks. Like they all have different ways that they approach world problems. So leaving the party, what does that mean? Well, in some states, it's more significant than others. It really just means for the average citizen how you vote in elections. So, for example, in uh, I think New Jersey, they have a closed primary. So that means that if you are, you have to be registered in, to one party or the other in order to vote in a primary. And in Virginia, where I live now, they have open primaries. So you don't have to register 
with a party affiliation in order to vote in primaries. Um, so it, it really just depends on where you live because every state has a different set of rules for their elections. Um, but for someone like me, who's been involved in the, in, in party politics since I was 17 years old, leaving the party is a much bigger deal because I'm, my whole career has been fully entrenched in Republican politics, Mm -hmm. you know, representing Republicans on television, working for Republican members of Congress, working for Republican campaigns, presidential campaigns, think tanks, um, you know, the, everything I've done in my career has been under the Republican umbrella. So for someone like me and, and others who have political careers like mine, leaving the party is actually a big deal. Cause if I ever want to run for office, that presents a problem. So, which I hope to do one day, <laughs> but running as an independent is difficult depending on where you live though. It depends on where yeah. you live. Um, and, and what not to say office that if, you're running for, I would assume. Yes. Cause like on local offices, it does, a lot of times there's, it, it, there's no party affiliation. I mean, the people know loosely who you are for, but you don't vote that way. Um, there's yeah. no, there's no party identifier on the ballot. Again, depends on where you live. Every, every, uh, district is different. So, you know, we'll see. I mean, not to say that one day, once the party is completely exercised of Trumpism, that, uh, I wouldn't return in some capacity in order to run for office, but, I don't see that happening anytime soon, given the the, uh, direction it's heading. So what do you say to folks who are like, but a lot of these things that I guess Republican Party stands for has has been there. Maybe now it's just more pronounced because of Trump. But like all of those things in terms of, you know, getting people quality health care or racism or sexism like that's, you know, been in the party. So. How do you now, like, is it just more pronounced and like, you can't now deal with the overtness? Yeah, that's actually something, um, I've had a bit of a reckoning with over the years watching that. Um, obviously those elements have been part of the party for decades, but they weren't the most prominent. They were in the fringes and the more sane Republicans, as I call them, were still driving the ship, steering the boat here. That changed significantly. Um, it started to change in the 90s with Newt Gingrich and those guys mm-hmm. and became more pronounced in 2010 with the Tea Party. And it's really been a, a, a rapid downhill slide since then. But those elements, I um, I think I was naive to how strong they actually ran mm-hmm. in the foundations mm-hmm. of the party. For years, because I was like, nah, you know, that was 50 years ago. This is that, that's not the case now, you know. <laughs> and um, my good friend, Stuart Stevens, who I've gotten to know through our work together in the Lincoln Project, Stuart wrote a book called It Was All a Lie that came out last year. And he is a veteran of five Republican presidential campaigns and countless other Republican campaigns. And he had a come to Jesus moment during this whole Trump debacle and realized that a lot of what the Republican party claimed they stood for was a lie. Mm. And he went through a lot of it. Um, and he, he acknowledged his role in, in perpetuating some of the uglier underbelly of the party, whether it was voter suppression or playing on racist fears. And, and he really just had a like a, just a big come to Jesus moment about his role and about how corrupt everything was in both morality and politically and said, I'm out. And reading his book 
I saw a lot of things that I rationalized or dismissed right there in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, it was there the whole time. Mm -hmm. You know, was this all a lie? Some of my friends who I worked with on Capitol Hill were, were like, you know, very, very close friends. And we all, none of us were Trumpers. We were all never Trump Republicans, thank God. I mean, I lost some friends too in this whole nightmare, very close ones. But these guys, they are like my brothers. And, and we would all convetch often when we would see people that we worked with or we knew acting like complete lunatics now. And we would say to each other, like, were they always that crazy? And we just didn't notice? <laughs> or were we just naive to it? Did we, or were we crazy too? And we're the ones that like, that changed? Like, we talk about this all the time because there's a lot of Republican players out there that are behaving in ways where like, what happened to you? But maybe they were, maybe they were the crazy ones the whole time and we were just naive to it. But yeah, I mean, yes, there is a, there's an acknowledgement that there was a very ugly, uh, uglier side to a lot of what, uh, what the Republican party as a party apparatus mm -hmm. was doing that, um, I was not completely acknowledging. And I think in, in many ways, I think across the country, you know, we're like a lot of people are, are seeing things for the first time, which is like very funny for me because, you know, I'm not surprised by anything besides the fact that I work in journalism and work in DC. We're like, we really shouldn't be surprised by anything anymore. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> being a journalist, you're kind of like, yeah, well, I heard that story on Tuesday. You just found out, but I knew. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> But also, like, growing up as a black woman in this country, like, these things were never, a lot of things were just never surprising to me. Um, and so it was, it, I don't know, it was just, it's interesting, I think, a lot with, you know, George Floyd and Rihanna Taylor, like, mm -hmm. things like that. People are like, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, I don't know, this is kind of the stuff my parents warned me about when I was no, growing that, up. That you're right. Like, well, for me, because I'm biracial, I grew up in, in blue collar white America. And my grandfather was a police officer. He was captain of our town, our hometown police department for 40 years. Um, so I, and my husband, like I said, he's a federal law enforcement officer. He's black. He's from Brooklyn. And th my experience growing up was very different. And so some of the, the, the racial challenges that a lot of my black friends and my husband went through, I didn't go through at the, in the same way. Mm -hmm. So it was only later in life that I became a bit more racially conscious, conscious mm -hmm. of some of those challenges because I, I grew up not, you know, looking at myself as any different than anybody else. And my mom always taught me to, you know, embrace the fact that I'm unique and not let anybody pigeonhole you or characterize you or hold you back because you're a woman or a woman of color. So I, I kind of had a different, a different mindset, but as I got older and got into the real world, obviously <laughs> you start to Smash notice some in the things face. that are a little <laughs> bit different, <laughs> you know? Um, and my, I have to say that some things that I've, that I've, that I was a bit more rigid about, um, in particularly in law enforcement, mm -hmm. um, I've changed, I've softened my positions on some of those things after seeing firsthand some of the systemic abuses, some of the inequities, um, particularly in policing, um, and, and how unfair the criminal justice system is. I've, that's something that while I worked in, in Congress, uh, I saw, cause I was directly involved in a, in a, uh, presidential pardon commutation case for mm. two border patrol agents who were unjustly convicted by the federal government 
for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler on the border in, in Texas. And um, he had a million dollars worth of drugs on him. And they there were some administrative mix-ups where they didn't report something properly. And they ended up getting 11 and 12 years in prison. And it was just egregious. It was insane. And my I, I dedicated like two and a half years of my life when I worked in Capitol Hill to this case to get them out of prison. And that opened up a whole new perspective for me on the criminal justice system. And I thought to myself, if this is what it, what it's like for guys that have literally congressional support and the powers of members of Congress helping them, what the hell is it like for the average person who gets caught up in the system? And I spent more time than I ever wanted to or ever imagined in federal <laughs> prisons and sitting in front of, you know, federal bureau of prisons directors and reading them the riot act and repeating their own, <laughs> their own rules and regulations back to them and how they were violating them and explain to me how this was allowed to happen. And just watching that all happen, it, it was life-changing for me. Um, ultimately I did help get them, uh, commuted by president George W. Bush in their last, in his last day in office and got them out of prison. Took two years, but better than 12. And they were actually fully pardoned by Trump um, in those final weeks, <laughs> ironically. And because um, I'm still friends with the families and watch their kids grow up. And it was it was in a, still one of the proudest um, professional achievement of my life because it literally saved those guys lives. But um, I, I was like, oh, man, it had to be Trump that did this. I don't want to give this guy credit for anything. I was like, oh, well, you know, none of it was worth it, though. I mean, <laughs> but I'm happy my guys got their pardons. It makes them whole and they can, you know, they get that scarlet letter off their records. But still, but anyway, I digress. But I bring that point up to say that that is a major policy area that I had a complete uh, awakening on. And now I'm, I'm part of a lot of um, police reform groups and discussions. And I, I, because I grew up in a law enforcement family and I'm married to one, I bring, I think a unique perspective to that debate mm. that others don't. So I want to make sure that I use that for good. Mm. Um, so your time in, in Congress as a woman, as a woman of color, even though you did grow up, you know, you'd like, I guess you didn't have quite that like consciousness, but it's different, obviously, when you walk out into the world and people are like, oh, you're other. How is yeah. that like for you to, to be a woman, be a woman of color, working in politics? So I fully embrace the other. You know, that started, it's funny you use that word, because um, I became officially an other in high school when I had to take standardized tests and check off ethnicity, and they didn't have mixed race or biracial. It, it wasn't a thing back in the 90s. Um, so I remember in, in 11th grade taking the PSATs and raising my hand and asking the proctor, uh, what do I, what do I check off here? She was like, other, I was like, all right, I'm all right with that. I'm another. <laughs> so it became kind of a joke that, you know, I've been an other my whole life and, uh, that's okay. But I think part of the fun of being an other is that you get to, um, break these stereotypes of what people think you should be or sound mm -hmm. like or look like or behave or think. And I did a lot of that because people were presumptuous. They assumed that I had a certain taste in music or they assumed that I spoke a certain way or just like stereotypes, cultural stereotypes that they needed to 
realize that you don't paint everyone with those broad brushes. Mm -hmm. And I remember specifically a congressman who was part of the state delegation of the congressman I worked for, who will remain nameless. (laughs) That was, um, they were very good friends and I had a really close relationship with the congressman that I worked for. And even though he became a crazy Trumper and started doing crazy things long after I left, it was very disappointing, but I appreciate him during the time that I worked for him because he treated me almost as an equal. He let me have a seat at the table at major meetings and decisions. And even though I was his communications director, he treated me almost like a chief of staff. And, um, it was awesome because I got to be exposed to all kinds of really cool things that most congressional staffers don't. And he used to say to me that he considered me a partner in our fight for freedom, not an employee. Mm. And that was a great way to approach things, you know? So he would, uh, you know, I was always, I was with him a lot. And this other congressman knew, everybody knew that I was, you know, the right hand here to the Mm -hmm. member. And um, this congressman would visit our office all the time. And he would always say, whenever he saw me, he would be like, hey, girlfriend. I used to be like, but I don't know you. I would do that to anyone, but I don't know you. Well, and even if I, I mean, I know him, but it's not, it's like, you are a middle-aged white dude that thinks you're, quote, trying to be cool. And it's just Because you not. think that, like, we, that's how I'm supposed to talk, or that's how I interact on a f- informal level with people. Like, I was, just, and I would ignore him. And I would just, I would just carry on doing whatever. You know, here I am, a senior staffer or a member of Congress, you know, and we're in at work and he's over here calling me girlfriend. I was like, okay, I let him get away with it a couple times and just ignored it. And then I finally said to the, the, my congressman, I said, <laughs> if he calls me girlfriend one more time, he's going to get told. <laughs> oh, girl, you're more saved than me because listen. Yeah, I was like, this is not, this is not how it's going to go. Okay. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and the con- my congressman laughed, you know, he said, I got, I got you. And I guess he told him cause he never called me girlfriend I again. Bet I he didn't. Have to him, no. <laughs> but that's just a, like a small example of how people stereotype you into thinking like, that's just how all women of color are. And, um, that that would be cute. And it wasn't like, don't just assume that that's the way things go. And that's what I would encounter a lot. Just presumption, just people being presumptuous and, and, figuring out ways to navigate that so that they would never be presumptuous again, or at least think twice about it. So did you feel like there had to be some kind of like buildup to you carving out your own path? You know, I think we all reach these moments as women, as women of color, of like really trying to carve out our path. And what did that look like for you? I, uh, I knew pretty early on that I wanted to be in Washington and that I wanted to be in the world of politics. Um, I was selected for a leadership trip when I was in eighth grade to come to Washington, DC for five days. I've done one of those. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think like it wasn't close up, but there was like close up foundation. There was a couple of those yeah. that were going on back then in the, in the nineties and late eighties. And, um, and it gave me an opportunity to see Washington up close And I was transfixed with everything, Mm. the history, the buildings, the museums and Congress and the Supreme Court and how everything was intertwined and the Capitol and the majesty of it all. And and I said, this is where I want to be. This is cool. And this is what I want to do, because it was the epicenter of political power 
And what what better way to help improve lives and help help this country reach that more perfect union concept that we're taught than to be a part of where that happens, where mm. the laws are made, where the decisions are made. So at 13, I, I was like, this is where I want to be. And I'll never forget. <laughs> I was such a nerdy when I was little. I was a cool nerd, though, but I was nerdy. So we were um, in Congress and I think on the House side and we were in a committee room and a, in a committee hearing it just wrapped up. And so they had like papers. And I think it was, if I remember correctly, this is a while ago, though, they had like a, it was like the subcommittee on the District of Columbia. Mm-hmm. So they had they had the budget um, printed out and I guess left behind. And it said like, you know, this com- congressional subcommittee on budget, da, 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 District of Columbia, like looked with the seat, congressional seal, looked all official. And I took it because I was like, well, somebody just left it here. And I was like, this is cool. And then I started to think, I'm like, oh my God, did I just steal government documents? Is like the FBI going to knock at our hotel room later and say like, <laughs> you've stolen official documents. And I look back, I rem- look back now, I'm like, I laugh at myself. And, what, and I thought about that moment when my first day working on the Hill. And I thought <laughs> when I was 13, I took a freaking budget, DC budget uh, packet thinking uh, I was going to get arrested by the FBI. And it was just really just simply a, a backgrounder, you know? Um, <laughs> But yeah, but I was just fascinated with the whole thing with the bells that ring, depending on what votes happening and, you know, the, the little railroad, the little subway that, that connects the, the mm-hmm. office buildings to the Capitol. Like, I just, all of it was cool for me. So I didn't really have to, I didn't really have to think too hard about it. That's what I wanted to do. I applied to George Washington university. I got in and that's where I went. And I started very focused on, um, my career path from day one at GEW. And I went there because I wanted to be, I wanted to have access to Congress and to all of the uh, resources of Washington Mm -hmm. firsthand. I didn't want to go to a college somewhere else and then kind of then go to DC and try to figure it all out. No, I started right at 17 um, and never looked back. And it was great. That's so interesting. Um, Colonial for life. (laughs) Are you a GW alum? I I went there for grad school. Nice. That's okay. You're still a colonial. (laughs) Raise um, high the buff and blue. <laughs> Y'all didn't see, but I was like upping like while she was like, yes. yes. It's so, I love my alma lot. It's so interesting because like I think I'm the only one who liked DC originally and didn't really care about politics. Like I'm <laughs> I'm such a nerd. Like I love me a good museum. Like put me right. in a museum and I'm like <laughs> I'm set for hours. And so like for it was funny because when I moved here and I made friends and how many friends like worked in the government, they all made fun of me because I was like, Oh, I just I don't know, like in my mind, like you wouldn't be able to just like see those people. Like they wouldn't just like yeah. be among us. And I'm just right. like, Oh, they like live somewhere else. <laughs> like to tell you, like true. normal people. I was like, but you're just like in the public? You're just walking it's around. Funny. It's so funny. I mean, DC culture is so different than other places, you know, mm-hmm. like New York, it's all about finance and wall street or, you know, like, um, fashion industry or ad industry. Like you have like pockets, right? Mm-hmm. DC, it's all government, all politics. And anyone who's not in those things, people are like, where did you come from? And why are you here? It's changed though, over the years a little bit since DC became a little more hip, it didn't yeah. used to be this cool. Um, <laughs> I came in 1993 before all of the glitz and glam that's in DC now. Yeah. 
um, the, the, the Ronald Reagan building was still a hole in the ground um, when I was a freshman in college. Like, downtown D.C. looked completely different than it yeah. does now. There were no high-end stores like that and excellent restaurants and, you know, Michelin-starred restaurants. There was none of that. You had, like, the Capitol Grill, the Caucus Room, and, like, you know, like three other places that were, like, the power places that you ate, like Morton's and, like, some steakhouse and somewhere else. Now... DC has like so much more culture and a yeah. foodie scene and you know, the, the different neighborhoods. I mean, where the sta- I remember when the stadium was, uh, that argument was even happening about whether the baseball team would come here. Mm-hmm. My, one of my best friends in college was a sports management major. So she had an internship for a summer in the baseball commission. So I remember helping her gather information in the summers for that bid and to watch that whole thing come to fruition was pretty cool. I remember when the national stadium first opened, I mean, that whole area of D.C. used to be like strip clubs and go-go clubs. And you did not go there unless you were from D.C. and knew somebody because that was it was rough over there. Not now. I mean, that's where we go for brunch. <laughs> like, no, it's true. It's, it cha- it's like I feel like it's even changed in like the four years that I've lived here. It's changed so drastically. And a good chunk of my friends are artists and photographers and like kind of do more of that or like social justice work like non-profit like that is a huge chunk of um my friends and it's like so for me it's work is such a juxtaposition to that working in journalism Mm -hmm. because here's the hub of politics so that's what we focus on and it's like but there's like this other world guys that like i'm in yes after i clock out it's (laughs) true and i think I think people need to have that balance. Mm-hmm. You know, like I mentioned earlier in the conversation that I'm so grateful that my mom brought me up to be really, really well-rounded. Yeah. Um, because you need that. And a place like D.C. offers, like, that's why I love New York, too, because you have everything you could possibly imagine at your fingertips in New York. Mm-hmm. D.C. is similar in that you have so much available to you in a much smaller, less um, hustle and bustle type of an environment. And I, and, and it's, I mean, the DC area is, is still the South, like where we live in, in Northern Virginia, you just go about 20 more miles and you see Confederate flags. And And that's like 20 miles is pushing it. Yeah. I'm a resident scholar for the university of Virginia uh, center for politics. And, um, I was heading down to Charlottesville for a panel and my mom happened to be visiting and she came with me. And we're driving down 95 on our way to Charlottesville. And there was this, this was about two years ago. There was this huge Confederate flag. And my mom was like, what the F is that? You know, we're from Jersey. You don't see Confederate. Like, what is this? This is 2018. I was like, we are in the South. People are, people forget that. I mean, it's not Mississippi South. But we are below the Mason-Dixie. Like, correct. People keep forgetting that we are below the Mason-Dixie. Yes. Like people forget that Maryland was not part of the union. So, you know, it's, um, we're reminded of those things, everyone, culturally, you know, mm-hmm. I love DC. I love the DC area, but I, I, I miss Jersey and I miss home all the time <laughs> just for cultural reasons. I did have an opportunity to live back home in Jersey for four years from 2013 to 2017. Um, my husband got a transfer and I got a, I started doing full-time media. I left Capitol Hill and started doing full-time TV, political TV. And um, I loved it. I, I, I forgot how much I missed Jersey, you know, living there after being in D.C. for so long. And um, it was nice to be back home for a little while. But 
we got tra- he got transferred back to DC, and that was okay with me because um, like, right, you know it's a home away from home, <laughs> DC, and it did change a lot even even in those four years. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. Come back, obviously. I'd be in DC a lot. I still had you know career things and friends and stuff here, and I watched them build the waterfront and add you know all of these cultural things. I was like, DC is actually like really cool now. I used to complain. Up. Facebook reminds me of how much I used to complain 12, 14 years ago <laughs> about how whack DC was. <laughs> that was before I was married, and you know, once I met my husband, it was fantastic. So, <laughs> what has been like changed? You know, your biggest challenge. In, in your in your career, you know, or how has it affected your life personally? So I, I think um, the biggest challenge has been actually since I've gone full-time media. Mm-hmm. I didn't really have too many challenges as I was doing all of my political stuff and working on the Hill and um, doing all the stuff that I was doing in politics. It The, the challenges started in 2014 2013, 2014, when I made the leap to go full-time media, which was never my plan. I really mm. didn't, that wasn't my plan. My plan was continue doing the political stuff. I absolutely loved my job on Capitol Hill. For seven years, I was excited to go to work every day. It was a really, really hard decision for me to leave that. But there was this was an opportunity to do something new, and um, we talked about it. My husband and I had just were recently engaged at that point. And like I said, he's originally from Brooklyn, so... He was like, look, I'm not, I'm not upset about going back up north either, but I can get this transfer. Let's do it. I was like, all right, you know, you YOLO, right? You only live once. Let's do it. So we did. And, um, my mom cautioned me and my mom and I are very close. Like I'm an only child. So it's me and my mom. And, um, we talk multiple times a day. And so when I made the decision, I said, well, what do you think, mom? And she's like, I'm worried that you might get bored. I said, really? She goes, well, let's, let's see. Well, of course, mom was right. Within the first couple of months, I was bored to death just talking on TV. I was used to the hustle and bustle of being on Capitol Hill, doing things that were meaningful every day, and working toward solving problems. I'm a problem solver. I'm a Virgo. I'm very organized. And like when I'm focused on something, look out. And um, I didn't feel that way in, in media. I felt like I wasn't accomplishing anything. And then 2014, 2015 came around and, um, Donald Trump came on the scene and it it became a whole lot. It just became very different because now what was common sense to me and growing up in Jersey, I was very familiar with Donald Trump and his antics in New York and Atlantic city and what a joke he was. And I'm like, people cannot be serious with this buffoon. But as I saw the party and others becoming more and more, um, entranced by his con game, I said, oh my God, this is what I've been gearing up for. I've been a truth teller my whole life. And I've been put in a position now where I had to make tough choices. And people always look to me as to being that voice of reason. And even if they didn't agree with me, they knew I came from an honest place. And um, I became one of the preeminent never Trump voices in political media for the next five years. And that was a challenge in the beginning because I, like I said, I felt bored with just talking. Um, But then when it became meaningful, then I was able to kind of realize that, okay, God put me in this position for a reason. And I I consider it a, a, a humbling privilege that I was given a platform where I could influence millions of people with my voice. And our work with the Lincoln Project in the final year of ousting Donald Trump became incredibly important 
because we were literally fighting for the, 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 the life of our democracy. I, whoever thought you know, that would be where I would be five years ago when I made that leap, but it's where I ended up. And clearly that was uh, on purpose. So, and that's what it's about. Purpose. Uh, I'm so sad. Like our time is coming to an end, but, um, I, I have a last question that I ask all of my guests, sure. uh, and it's how do you define being a woman or womanhood? I define being a woman um, as being a, it is a, a privileged position of multiple labels. You have the ability, God created us to be multitaskers. And as a woman, we have so much power in so many areas that I think not enough, not enough of us embrace. So I embrace my womanhood as being a warrior and whether that's a warrior for truth, a warrior for integrity, a warrior for others. Um, We bring life into this world and there is no greater power than that. And however you choose to use that power, just know that never underestimate your own power as a woman. Never let anybody else tell you otherwise either. I love that. I love that. I love all the answers I get, but I, I love that. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank and you. also for one other thing, since I, I have to give a shout out to my, to my husband again, because he is, um, I, I've been very blessed to have a, an incredibly supportive partner in this crazy life journey. And not everyone has that. And when I was, um, I met him later in life and it was, uh, we got married at 38. Um, he had been married before, so he, he knew what not to do, which is fine. That's great. Um, but he's, uh, he's incredibly, uh, supportive and, and our, our relationship is, is something that is, um, you, you need to have that balance, that partner in life when you're doing something like this. It's, it's not everybody has that. And I'm grateful that I waited and that we, when you have a, a love like ours, it's, uh, it makes all of the crazy and all of the, <laughs> all of the chaos, um, manageable because you know that you've got that support at home. And so anyone who finds that, uh, they need to consider that a blessing like I do. And if you don't be patient because there is one for everyone out there at some point. So do not compromise your basic belief system just for companionship because then you'll regret that. So you don't have to, you don't have to. I love a little <laughs> tag at the end. Okay. You also yeah. should also see the joy that's like on her face. It's like palpable. And I really love that. Um, Tara, I'm, I'm like so sad. Like we have to stop chatting. Like this was great. This was delightful. You're delightful. Oh, thank you. Um, just so much energy that like radiates through. Um, oh, well, thank you. <laughs> do you have anything that you want to shout out, promote, no, I mean, just, you know, for, for folks who want more information on the Lincoln Project, uh, we're all over social media and uh, lincolnproject.us. Uh, my podcast is Honestly Speaking with Tara, and it's everywhere you download your podcasts. And um, I've been, uh, like I said, I'm a UVA resident scholar. I also had a fellow resident fellowship with Harvard, which was the greatest experience. It was amazing. I felt like I was 20 years old again, <laughs> living up there in the hallowed halls of Cambridge and Harvard. Cambridge, it was, yes. it was, that was just incredible. I'm, I'm, I'm still like, um, 
I still can't believe that I had that opportunity. So that was really cool. And uh, my students are like my little kids now and, and, you know, they're grown, they're 20 years old, but they're still, (laughs) I still still feel like my kids and we have great relationships. So I'm grateful for that. But you can follow me everywhere on social media and see what I'm doing. My Instagram at the Tara Setmayer, you get a little of the personal side of what I do and the goofiness that my husband and I are always in the middle of. Um, My Twitter feed is where I bring the political fire um, all the time. And, um, I hope you don't mind F-bombs because I drop them a lot. It's kind of part of our Jersey vocabulary, but, um, there's no better word to describe a lot of what happened in politics. So there's a lot of F-bombs sometimes, uh, on our LP TV show, the breakdown, which is on, uh, the Lincoln project YouTube channel on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 PM. Tara. You're just doing it all. Okay, well, shoot. <laughs> Everything will be linked in the show notes. Um, yes, well, you can find. I'm easy. I'm the easiest person to find because there's only one Tara Setmayer. <laughs> Which, like, thank goodness, because sometimes, you know. Um, Tara, thank yeah, you so easy. much. Um, thank you all for listening. In the meantime, in between time, please connect with the show on Instagram and Twitter at PrettyFaceLady3. Go ahead and like us on Facebook at More Than a Pretty Face. And also, please rate, review, and subscribe. It really does help the show grow. If you'd like to connect with me, connect with the show, please email at prettyfacewomen at mtapfpodcast.com. And talk to you soon. Bye-bye.